Our Bible reading today is taken from the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 through to 24. The words will come up on the screen, and we pray that you'll follow along. We're reading, of course, from the authorized version of the Holy Scriptures, believing it to be a most faithful and reliable translation of the original Hebrew and Greek. Let's hear the word of God. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1. Now, therefore, hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and unto the judgments which I teach you, for to do them, that ye may live, and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers giveth you. Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did because of Baal Peor. For all the men that followed Baal Peor, the Lord thy God hath destroyed them from among you. But ye that did cleave unto the Lord your God are alive, every one of you this day. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that ye should do so in the land, whether ye go to possess it. Keep, therefore, and do them, for this is your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great, who Hath God so nigh unto them, as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great, that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law, which I set before you this day? Only take heed to thyself, and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen. And lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life. But teach them thy sons and thy sons' sons. Especially the day that thou stoodest before the Lord thy God in Horeb. When the Lord said unto me, Gather me the people together. And I will make them hear my words. That they may learn to fear me all the days that they shall live upon the earth. And that they may teach their children. And ye came near and stood under the mountain. And the mountain burned with fire unto the midst of heaven with darkness and clouds and thick darkness. And the Lord spake unto you out of the midst of the fire. Ye heard the voice of the words, but ye saw no similitude, only ye heard a voice. And he declared unto you his covenant which he commanded you to perform, even ten commandments. And he wrote them upon two tables of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that ye might do them in the land, whether ye go over to possess it. Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for ye saw no manner of similitude on the day the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image and similitude of any figure the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any beast that is on the earth, 
the likeness of any winged fowl that flieth in the air, the likeness of any thing that creepeth on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the waters beneath the earth. Unless thou lift up thine eyes unto the heaven, and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the host of heaven, shouldest be driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all nations under the whole heaven. But the Lord hath taken you and brought you forth out of the iron furnace, even out of Egypt to be unto him a people of inheritance, as ye are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes, and swear that I should not go over Jordan, and that I should not go into that great good land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. But I must die in this land. I must not go over Jordan, but ye shall go over and possess that good land. Take heed unto yourselves, lest ye forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he hath made with you, and make you a graven image or likeness of anything, which the Lord thy God hath forbidden thee. For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of his own infallible and inerrant word. Now my text this morning is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 20. It reads as follows, But the Lord hath taken you and brought you forth out of an iron furnace, even out of Egypt, to be unto him a people of inheritance, as ye are this day. And I've entitled this sermon, God's Possession Out of the Iron Furnace. These words were spoken by Moses to the children of Israel on the banks of the river Jordan. I want you to think of them in the border of the promised land. The 40 years of the wilderness of wanderings are now behind them. And Moses is going over their history from before they left Egypt up to the present time. So he wants them to think of their history as God's people. He wants to remind them of the commands that God has given them as they seek to live out their lives. Remember Deuteronomy means the second law. It's the second reading of the law or the second reiteration of the law of God amongst them. Moses here is calling for their personal obedience to God's law. Think of the word hearken, chapter 4, verse 1. Now therefore hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and unto the judgments which I teach you for to do them, that ye may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers giveth you. The word hearken shows the need for implicit obedience to all that God says, to every statute and every judgment. Heeding and hearing the uh, word of God will uh, be a rule for their conduct, uh, and obedience to all that God has given will result, Moses is telling them, in a successful conquest of the land of promise and the enjoyment of that land, that land that flows with milk and honey. So their, their conquest of the land and the enjoyment of all of God's blessing is based upon their submission to God's law. I'm reminded of what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 4 and 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth 
of God. If you look at chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, verse 2, it says, Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. You see, God's word is not to be tampered with. They're not to add to or take away from God's word. Every word is precious. Every word is impure. Every word is inspired by the breath of God. It reminds us of what Paul told Timothy. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And here's Moses on the edge of Jordan, 40 years after they left Egypt, and he's issuing to them a warning. And the warning is to them not to add or diminish aught uh, from the word of God. And that warning, of course, comes right down to us. The law of God as given by God was complete. It was sufficient to direct the people how they're to live and what they're to believe. God's law is not to be supplemented. It's not to be reduced. It's not to be added to. And anything that contradicts the law of God, corrupts the law of God, will not be tolerated. And as Moses continues to address them, he wants them to hear and heed the warning against the danger of idolatry. Listen to verse 15. He says to them, Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for ye saw no manner of similitude in the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image and similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any beast that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged fowl that flieth in the air, the likeness of anything that creepeth in the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. And lest thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven, and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the host of heaven should be driven to worship them. And serve them, which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all nations under the whole heaven. Here's this take heed. Moses knew the depths of the depravity of their heart. He knew that they were well aware of their natural proneness to sin in this area of idolatry. So he's saying to them, don't make an image of a man or woman to bow down to them or worship them. Don't make a, an image of the beast of the field to worship that beast. Don't make an image of any uh, of the winged fowl or on the heavens or the fish in the sea. Don't make an image of the sun and moon and stars to bow down and worship it and serve them. Here's one of the dangers that they faced. And Moses is reiterating that danger. He doesn't want them to forsake the Lord and to forget him and not to worship him with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. Isn't that a danger that we all face? Even as God's redeemed people, we are prone to forget the Lord. We're prone to forsake him. We're prone to turn away and worship the God of self. We can, are prone to live according to our own heart's desire, to do what's right in our own eyes, to worship the God of material possessions, the God of worldly pursuits. Let's remember the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. There's to be no one or anything in between us and the Lord. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
Remember the first and great commandment that the Lord Jesus reiterated in the Gospel of Matthew? In Matthew chapter um, uh, 22, he tells us this in the verse uh, 37. Listen to the word of God. Matthew 22 and 37. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And in order to drive home the point, Moses reminds them of God's dealings with them 40 years earlier. Look at the contrast. Verse 20, Deuteronomy 4. But the Lord hath taken you and brought you forth out of the iron furnace, even out of Egypt, to be unto him a people of inheritance, as ye are this day. Notice the reference to the iron furnace. It caught my eye yesterday. I was thinking about what to preach this morning. We're told what the iron furnace is, even out of Egypt, so we have no problem identifying the iron furnace. And we're told that the Lord hath taken you and brought you forth out of that iron furnace in order, notice the wording, to be unto him a people of inheritance. What does that mean? That means God's possession, God's treasure. And Moses adds this, as ye are this day, 40 years after they left Egypt. Now, I was thinking of a title. Here's the text. Here's the title. God's possession out of the iron furnace. I was tempted to preach on the subject of God's forgiveness, but it would be a mini-series we'd end up with, and I didn't want that because I want to start a series in Colossians probably next week in the will of God. So we're just thinking about this theme today. God's possession out of the iron furnace. Now, there's three things. I want you to think of the picture of the iron furnace. Moses likens Egypt unto an iron furnace. Look at the words. But the Lord have taken you and brought you forth out of the iron furnace, even out of Egypt. So he likens Egypt to an iron furnace. He's describing life in Egypt before the exodus, before the redemption took place. And the iron furnace, I believe, refers to their whole life's experience in Egypt. Every ordeal that they had. All their suffering. All their pain. All their tears. Their hardship. Their affliction. I want to tell you, it was not an easy place. I want you to think of life as cruel. Life is hard. Life is painful. Life is excruciating at times that they wanted to escape and give up. Isn't it a picture of life in this world? Is this world not like a spiritual Egypt, especially to those who are without Christ? I believe in Egypt they experienced the bitterness of sin. The Bible teaches that the way of the transgressor is hard. Think of the many today in our society that have a love for sin. A love for spiritual darkness. No time or thought or fear of God or the things of God. They, they live a, a life of drunkenness. How many are addicted today to drugs? How many that are in love with their selves? So much so that they do what's right 
in their own eyes, irrespective of what God says in their word. They're certainly not conscious of their sin. They're not conscious of sin's consequences. You see, I believe that the Bible teaches about the deceitfulness of sin. Sin's out to deceive you. Sin's out to destroy you. Sin's out to damn you in every shape and form. You see, many today think sin's not a bad thing. They're not fully conscious of what it is. They're not fully conscious of the consequences of it all. So they live independently of God. And I asked this morning, is that a picture of you? And there you are as you live out your life from the day you were born. And as you journey through life, you face trial and tribulation. You face hardship. All of us are experiencing this national calamity of COVID-19 one year on. And despite the danger that you face, despite even the possible death of your own body and the loss of your own soul, the multitudes in our land are not turning to God. The multitudes in our land are not repenting before the Lord. They're not desiring or seeking to get right with God. They continue to add sin unto sin. And we cry out, how long, Lord? How long, Lord? And in the bitterness of sin, they're living in the iron furnace of a spiritual Egypt. And they're not only in bitterness of sin in the iron furnace, but they're in bondage to slavery. See, remember, the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt. They had no rights. They had the very basics to live on. I believe that Pharaoh gave them food, probably scant provision. He provided shelter for them. Probably had to build it themselves in the land of Goshen. And also clothes to wear. They had to work for Pharaoh without wages. And yet you think of Pharaoh's treatment of them as slaves. You think of his attempt to murder the baby boys through telling the midwives to kill those baby boys. You, you think of the many beatings and killings that took place of those um, cruel taskmasters in that day and generation. The many that lost their lives. You think of the order that was given just before the exodus, how they were to make bricks and go out now and gather their own straw and yet make up the same quota. You see, Pharaoh was predicted in the Bible or presented as a type of the devil, a hard taskmaster. And every unconverted soul in the midst of life's journey, with all its hardship and trials and troubles and national calamities, every unconverted soul not only experiences the bitterness of sin that there's no consciousness of, but every unconverted soul is in bondage to the devil. They're enslaved to sin and Satan. They, they live, as it were, in the lap of the, 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 the wicked one, as John tells us. And the devil keeps sinners in bondage. And they, in the midst of their hardship, they have very little happiness or true satisfaction or true pleasure. I have to think of Joseph in the prison house in the land of Egypt. It tells us in Psalm 105 and verse 24 that he was laid in irons. You think of Joseph with chains to his body, maybe around his feet, up to his waist, or maybe even his hands. 
and, 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 and that, that iron there had an effect on Joseph. Because it talked about the iron coming into his soul. And yet how many uh, today, despite the, the murmurings and the moanings and the complainings, don't see how bad life is. They, they don't see that they're in bondage. Not only in bitterness, but in bondage. And here's another thing about the iron furnace. The children of Israel during the 40, 430 years that they spent in Egypt, much of it was in slavery. They were not a free people. And I wonder to myself how many of them would have welcomed death as a means of escape. I, I know at times they said to Moses that they wished they had died there. Wish we had died in Egypt. Wishing for death to come and take them away from all of this. Can't take it anymore. And you think of the many in the face of trials and troubles and national calamities and the guilt and power and grip of sin. Many who are mentally ill and, and painfully ill in their body would, would consider suicide or consider euthanasia. And yet what they're forgetting is the Bible says in James chapter 1 and verse 15, listen to these words. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Remember the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 8, 22, 24, if you die in your sins where I am, you cannot be. In the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, the apostle Paul said this, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. And the Lord Jesus taught his followers with these words, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now I know I'm failing to paint the picture, but what was Egypt like? For the children of Israel, it was like an iron furnace experience. And I trust you'll catch the drift. Life in Egypt was no holiday camp for the children of Israel. It was no butlins camp. It was not like the brochure. If I could describe it this way, I would put it as a, a life of hell and earth. An iron furnace experience with all the bitterness of sin that you've no consciousness of. With all the bondage of being a slave. With all the blessedness of, of welcoming death and slaughter. I want to ask, is that a picture of you right now? Are you thinking of your life with all its bitterness, its bondage? Believing that you'd rather face and meet death and live any longer than like this. Real affliction. And God says, I have seen it. God says, I've heard your cry. And, and the Lord is able to come and rescue you and redeem you and reconcile you unto himself. I want you to think secondly and quickly about the process in the iron furnace. Now think of the iron furnace. I want you to think of a blacksmith, say a place of work or maybe even a shop. Maybe an ironmonger's and what's he making there? He's making Metal wheels for the chariots. He's making swords and spears. He's making shields. He's making armor. He's making cups and plates. Maybe out of copper. Maybe out of gold and silver. Maybe even over pewter. But you see in the process in the iron furnace. There's a smelting process. The raw ore is put in to smelt down. 
to make it become a molten liquid. And I was thinking of the words of Jude in the little epistle of Jude, the penultimate book of the Bible before the book of Revelation, before the unveiling of Christ. This is what the book of Jude says in um, 23. He says, And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Pulling them out of the fire. It was Jeremiah that talked about a brand plucked from the burning. And I want to say to you out of Christ this morning, you need to get saved. You today deserve hell fire for all eternity. I deserved hell fire, but the Lord saved me. The Lord pulled me out of the fire because I was going through a smelting process. And I pray that the Lord will do that to you. There's not only a smelting process, but there's a strengthening process. You see, the molten liquid is poured into a mold. It's left to cool. And then it is uh, reheated. And there's a strengthening process going on. The um, metal worker, the blacksmith, intends to make something out of this. So it's in and out of the fire. It's reheated. The metal's refolded over and over again. And that makes it very strong. If I could illustrate, think of a sword. If you use a sword long enough, it could bend. If you use a sword, you'll blunt the edge. If you use a sword, you see it in some of those old fillings where the uh, sword uh, just breaks. The Japanese developed a technique to, to take the metal and to make it very, very hot. And then to allow it to cool and to reheat it and fold it over again and reheat and refold it over and over. And this process was designed to, to strengthen the metal so that, that the sword, when it was being used, would prove its worth. And I'm thinking of the enemy of our souls that's out to attack us, out to break us, out to bend us, uses every weapon in his arsenal against us, and we need to be strengthened. Isn't this what the Lord Jesus said to uh, Peter? Remember in Luke 22, he said this in Luke 22 and 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon. There's his old name, thinking about his old life, life in the flesh. Behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, what she's to do? Strengthen Thy brethren. Do you see that? Peter, I have prayed for you. And the Lord Jesus is praying for us this morning. And he's praying that our faith will not fail. Peter's faith didn't fail. It was Peter's flesh that failed him. He sinned in his flesh. He denied the Lord with oaths and cursings. And yet the Lord used that very process, that process of backsliding, that process of restoration to make Peter even stronger. And through the power of the Holy Ghost, the failure became a firebrand for the Lord and the day of Pentecost. There's a strengthening process. I want to tell you there's a shaping, there's a separating process when the liquid um, molten metal is being heated. The dross is separated from it. You see, the dross is not allowed to mix with the pure metal because the dross will cause a weakness and lead to failure. 
And of course, what is true in the physical realm in the iron process is true in the spiritual realm. There's a spiritual process goes on. And when we're brought into Christ, we're learning to die unto sin and live more and more unto righteousness. And we should see an advancement in this. We should have a hatred for sin and a love for righteousness if we're going to be like the Lord Jesus. Could I tell you as well, there's a shaping process goes on. You think of Saul of Tarsus, how the Lord said in Acts chapter 9 to Ananias that Saul of Tarsus was a chosen vessel. In other words, he was going to be a useful instrument in the Lord's hand. The Lord was going to make something good out of his life. And the Lord wants to make something good out of your life. He doesn't want you to experience the bitterness of sin, the bondage of slavery. He doesn't want you to look forward to the blessedness of slaughter and, 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 and die and without Christ. The, the, the Lord has brought you this far in the journey. The Lord has allowed the iron furnace process to take place in your life so that you can be smelted down, so you can be strengthened by the grace of God, so you can be separated from your sin in order to shape and make your life something beautiful unto the Lord, so that you can testify and talk of him, so that you can bring glory and honor to him. Can you give glory to God? Can you thank him for your well-being physically, mentally, and spiritually today and say the Lord has done great things for me, we're off your glad? I want you to think not only of the picture of the iron furnace and the process of the iron furnace, but I want you to think thirdly and lastly of the possession of the iron furnace. Notice the words. It says in our text, to be unto him a people of inheritance, as ye are this day. Now, I told you last week that the word inheritance is used 203 times in the Bible. And here's one of those references. And here's the Lord describing his own people through Moses, a people that he has redeemed. Notice the words, but the Lord hath taken you and brought you forth out of the iron furnace, even out of Egypt. How did the Lord do that? He redeemed them through the blood of the Lamb. And not only did he redeem them, but he wanted to enrich them. Think of this word, inheritance. You see, we think of an inheritance as you at some time in your life coming into the possession of an inheritance as a gift from another when that someone has died. And we understand the word that way in both testaments. Now, what does it mean here? Moses is saying, not merely that God has redeemed you and God has made you rich by giving you an inheritance. He's saying more than that. He's saying this, you are God's inheritance to be unto him a people of inheritance as you are this day. Do you see that? You don't deserve it. You'll certainly not get it from anyone else. It's more than the Lord has given his people a rich inheritance. It's true that we've received that inheritance through the death of Christ. Christ remembers the Passover lamb. So we're rich unto God through the ground of the blood. And remember all our riches are in Christ. We're chosen in him before the foundation of the world. 
We've been called unto salvation in the fullness of time. He cares for his people, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. He counsels us. I have counseled thee. He can say to his people. He speaks his word to us. He comforts us in the journey. He carries us in his everlasting arms. He has cleansed us in the precious blood. Thank the Lord for that day when we heard the words, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. But it's not that he has made us just rich through the ground of the blood. That's tremendous. But this statement is more than that. This statement means that we are unto him a people of inheritance. Think of this today. If you're a child of God, born again of the Holy Spirit, washed in the blood of Christ, redeemed out of spiritual bondage, a crueler bondage than Egypt, even the bondage of sin and Satan, made a new creature, adopted into God's family. God is saying, you're unto me a people of inheritance. It's not a wonderful proclamation for God to make. Not only that he's made us rich in Christ, but here's his proclamation. You're unto me, a people of inheritance. Let that sink in today. Receive that into your heart and receive it into your mind. Over in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 9, 33 and verse 9, we read the words. Listen to this. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. I've been thinking very much about Psalm 33 and verse 12. Listen to the word of God. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And the people whom he have chosen for his own inheritance. I've been thinking of our united kingdom. And the way God has visited and blessed our nation in days that are past. Over in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, we read these words. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine. And again, if we go back to the Psalms, in Psalm 135, This is what the psalmist said. He makes a tremendous statement there. Psalm 135. And he tells us in the verse 4. For the Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself and Israel for his peculiar treasure. Remember last week we were thinking about Paul's prayers. Ephesians 1, 15 to 23. Ephesians 3, 14 to 22. I would like you to read them over again. I would encourage you to pray them. You don't know what to pray for? Get down on your knees before the Lord and pray these prayers through. Make them your own prayers. And we talked last week about the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 18, being a prayer for every believer to pray. These are marvelous prayers, full of rich instruction, full of tremendous encouragement. Remember what he says. He says this in verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being lightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. I would ask you today to remember that the Lord doesn't need an inheritance. The Lord is 
self-existent and self-contained. But he has one. And the Lord's inheritance are his redeemed people. The Lord's inheritance is his. It's his people. It's not merely what he's provided for his people. All the riches in Christ, it's a way beyond that. Our riches in Christ are included. But we are his particular treasure. That's a most glorious proclamation. That's a wonderful truth to lay hold of. But there's not only a wonderful proclamation here, but I want you to think of this. There's a wonderful plan here. Now remember, this is against the backdrop of redemption. These people have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And you think of Christ, our Passover Lamb. And we read in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, and we read here in the verse 16, a tremendous statement. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Think of the angels. They're sinless angelic creatures. Think of the highest archangels. Gabriel comes to mind. And they're worshipping God. Michael comes to mind. And I want to tell you that we often think of the angels as the, 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 the highest pinnacle of God's creation. But I want to tell you that's not true. Do you know that all of mankind, men and women who are made in the image of God, they form the most glorious pinnacle of God's created order. Do you know that angels are appointed to be ministering spirits unto the redeemed children of God? Whenever the angels sinned, what steps did God take to save them? The answer is no step. Did the Lord lift a finger to save one fallen angel? No. But when men sinned in Adam, when men filmed in Adam, when men inherited the guilt and pollution of um, Adam's first transgression, when men inherited the punishment of sin, which is death, what did the Lord do? The Lord sent his only begotten son into the world, born of the Virgin Mary. And what did he do? He laid hold of the seed of Abraham. What does that mean? It means he was born a man-child. It means he was born into a Jewish family. It means that he was born in the likeness of sinful flesh. It means he took upon him the form of a servant. He humbled himself. And he did so in steps of humiliation all the way to the cross. Not only did he live a sinless life, but he died an atoning death. And he shed his blood. And in Christ, he chose you. And in Christ, he called you. And in Christ, he has cleansed you. In Christ, he counsels you and cares for you and comforts you and carries you. But he did one other thing. And this is what I want you to grasp this morning. This is part of this wonderful plan. He claimed you. You redeemed child today. He claimed you as his precious treasure. Oh, that you would understand how precious you are to the Lord. Believer this morning in Christ, what are you facing right now? What have you been through last week? What are you going to experience this incoming week? Hardship, tears, illness, loss of job, bad news, more trials and troubles. Do you feel you're under a cloud? Financial difficulties, the breakup of relationship, and you've got a heavy burden. And you the 
whole world is, is collapsed in around you, your little world, and you feel it all hell is against you. And here you are in the darkness of this synth, uh, uh, situation. And I want to tell you by way of encouragement this morning, you are his particular treasure. And that's one of the reasons that he has redeemed you, not only to make you rich, but he claims you as his particular treasure. Oh, I know that the ungodly don't see this this morning. I know that they're blind and deaf and, uh, and dead to all that the Lord sees and all that the Lord hears. But it's not what man thinks of you that matters. It's what God thinks of you. And here's what he says. You are my treasure. Do you know that the Bible even says in relation to the day of your death, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Not only the life that we live, that we're precious to the Lord, but even the day of our death. Why? It sees an answer to the prayer of Christ. And what's the prayer of Christ? Father, that they be with me, where I am, they may be also. And over in Psalm, 100, or Psalm 60, um, 5 and verse 4, a psalm that we've sung here in the past, and this is what we read in the scriptures. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. Think of this. The Lord chose you from before the foundation of the world in Christ to claim you as his own particular treasure. On what basis not because you're great or good or generous. Not because you deserve it. Not because you desire it. Remember what we read in Deuteronomy 7 and verse 7. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people. For ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you. And because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers. Hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You see, the source of this claim is the Lord himself. This is the, the topmost blessing of every blessing that we could enjoy. The Lord claims me as his peculiar treasure. Turn over there to the book of Romans as we come to a close. In Romans chapter 8, and look with me at verse 17. Here's a, a wonderful scripture. And if children, remember you're a child of God, then heirs, heirs of God. We're not only children of God and followers of Christ and disciples, but we're heirs of God. And notice these words, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we may suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. You know what that word joint heirs with Christ means? It means equal heirs with Christ. All that you have in Christ, all that's due to you in Christ, is not only his, but becomes ours because we're heirs of God. Is it any wonder Peter talked about us being a peculiar people? The word peculiar means a people of a purchased possession. He purchased you, redeemed you with the blood to make you his own. His own what? His own prized possession. His own special treasure. All that we need is in Christ. 
all that you need in, to live your life, despite the iron furnace situation, is to be saved by Christ and to live by the faith of Christ. I close with this scripture over there in the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. A verse that I love, a verse that you should underline, a verse that you should memorize, a verse that you should try to uh, mirror your life on. Listen to the word of God. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, we're, we're saved by faith in Christ. But that doesn't mean that we live and serve the Lord and witness for him in our own strength or power. I'll never give you ten principles to live by or ten secrets of a happy life or ten ways to preserve or protect your marriage. That's all contrary to the New Testament. You see, Christ is all you need. And the power to live the Christian life, the power to obey God, the, 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 the power to pray, the power to witness, the power to walk with God, the power to worship the Lord in spirit and truth is all bound up in Christ. The life that I now live in the flesh, that's where we have our difficulty and problems, our temptations to sin. How does he live it? I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here's Paul living in the real world and he knows his body is a vehicle to transgression and sin and he knows about the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. He knows about his mind. He knows about what ears can see or ears can hear and eyes can see. But how does he live? He lives by faith in Christ, forsaking all he trusts him for all that he needs because he's God's special treasure. God's possession out of the iron furnace. Can you catch the picture today of the iron furnace? Can you see the process of the iron furnace, what it was doing to the people? And can you see the possession out of it? God has redeemed you to claim you as his own particular treasure. May that bring encouragement and help to you at this time this morning. And could I say if you're out of Christ then your greatest need is to see your sin. Your greatest need is to repent and receive Christ as Lord and Savior as he's offered in the gospel.